Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 222. On today's show, we talk about handedness in the archaeological record. Let's dig a little deeper, but those right handies people probably won't even let us. I don't even know. Shovels are biased. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. How's it going? Good. Why do I say the same I damn thing every you time? I don't know. You do. And then I say good every time. You're not good, Not though. great. Not perfect. Not amazing. Just good. I'm hot and I'm burning up. I well, need more solar and I need more lithium. I know. I think you're going to be a bit punchy this episode because <sighs> you're hot angry right now. Some people get hangry. You get hungry. No, that's not right. Mm. I think it's the same thing. Yeah, I guess it kind of is. Yeah, it's just an H. You're just hungry. Yeah, it's all the H things I get angry about. <laughs> yeah, no, we're in... Uh, Shasta, California, actually. Yeah. We came over from Reno where we spent a few days. And Mm -hmm. even though we can see Mount Shasta, which has seven quadrillion gallons of snow on it. It does. Yeah. Like more snow than I've... cubic feet. Right. Yeah. It's more snow than I've ever seen on it this time of year. In June. Probably more snow than I've seen on it in like April. Yeah. You know, it's just a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, But the city of Shasta, however, had a high of 92 today. So mm. it's not quite that now, but it feels nice and warm inside the RV here. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I'd say nice. No, but it's not nice. Warm, yeah. warm is accurate. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, if I wasn't able to get the fan sounds out, we've got the fan sucking mm. air out of the ceiling, mm-hmm. and we've got our Dyson on too, and it's just, uh, yeah, it's yeah. A lot. And we have windows open and like traffic going by too, but like we're just gonna have to live with that because it's so hot in here. Yes. For those who don't RV, they're very hot inside. Yeah. Even when it's cooler outside, because it's cooling off out there, but it's still very hot in here. Yeah. So, yeah. I digress. All right. Well, I am left handed. Yep. And we deal with this. We? Yes, we. We <laughs> deal with this almost daily because even just last night we were out oh, to dinner true. with friends. Yes. And on a table set up where there's four on one side and four on the other side, like I can only really sit in two places without pissing somebody off. Yeah. And we ended up even moving me down so I could be more in the middle because it was all really my friends. Mm-hmm. And and I just, you know, he I was elbowing me you the whole the time. Entire it, dinner. it was actually a pretty tight table, too. It was very tight. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it was steak, so it's like knife action. It's like when yeah. I met you, you know, 18 years ago or whatever, I didn't know that I was going to have an elbow in my face every time we went out to dinner for yes. the rest of my life. But yes. I guess that's what I committed to when I married you. It is. So <laughs> about a month ago, it got me wondering. When did handedness develop? Yeah. At first I thought, has anybody researched this? Yeah. And then I was proved stupid because of course people have researched this. They've researched everything. Yes. (laughs) So first, uh, just a couple of stats here. 
85% of all people in all populations are right-handed for most manual actions. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that is astounding. That's hey, not majority. just penmanship. I know. Right over here. But why? Why 85%? Yeah. It's not like it's, it's 50-50. No. There's a reason for it, yeah. right? It's not it's not random. It's not It still could be random. But well, it's Yeah. I mean, I I actually am not sure well, well, we'll get into this yeah, a little we'll bit get, later. We'll get yeah, because there. there are some reasons for it. And you're right, it's actually not random. It can be inherited. So, mm-hmm. anyway, no other great ape species shows such strong population level bias. And that's a key phrase there population level. Because individually, some great apes do show a preference for a hand, but mm-hmm. there's not like this 85% of them use one hand over another. Yeah. There's, there's more of a, it, like it really is more, more symmetrical. More of a 50-50. Yeah. 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 So. And it might be that they're more ambidextrous too. Like they switch back and forth between different hands to do different tasks. Right. Yeah. So. One of the things this might indicate, since we share most of our genetic code with the other great ape species, notably chimpanzees, mm-hmm. and, and but all the other ones. What this really means is if they don't have a strong bias towards right or left-handedness, and we do, mm-hmm. then our bias towards right-handedness or towards, towards one direction or another, no matter what, mm-hmm. what it was, must have developed after our, our last common our ancestor. Last common ancestor. Yeah. yeah. And if you're not sure what that means, go listen to our paleoanthropology series we did a few months back. Yes. And we walk through the entire prehistory pre-man tree mm, so. i'd say entire well not entire <laughs> like we did the best job we could in like four, four episodes or something yeah. like that so yeah in reference to this in case i forget we just finished editing the life and ruins podcast episode 161 which comes out the day after this one does yeah great episode. And, yeah they're talking about a paper regarding homo naledi which is an ancestor mm-hmm. and they it's the uh, new, kind of the newest one right like, yeah, it's i think one of the we, newer ones, we talked yeah. about it in our series as well yeah very briefly for sure yeah. but uh there's evidence of them actually burying their dead intentionally mm-hmm. so that's a pretty cool episode yeah yeah check that out anyway to look at the difference in handedness in mm-hmm. humans and you know kind of how this developed and, and trying to figure out when this developed researchers look at a number of things notably though prehistoric stone artifacts and the mm-hmm. only real reason for that is the farther back you go, it's like the only thing left. Mm-hmm. You know, the only thing that we can really look at. Yeah. We can look at rock art 30, 40,000 years ago in some cases. Yeah, but rocks and stones. Yeah. That's what you've got left over. And and those things that are organic that might have turned to stone yeah. through fossilization, you might have some of those, but those are even fewer right. in the archaeological record. So Yeah, now using these tools... Right side bias is well established from Neanderthals onward mm. because there's a lot of archaeological evidence for the Neanderthal, yes. you know, genus and species. Mm-hmm. We have uh, a lot of all, tools. The, all the way down. We have a yeah. lot of examples of skeletal yeah. remains, so we have I a know. lot to. We even have like, what, don't we have like clothing or something like that? Like furs or I something? I think so, yeah. Neanderthals? I can't remember. Like, there's some really great preservation yeah. where you do get some of those organic items preserved, so right. we, we have some. Yeah, there's little evidence from anything older than that. Yeah. You know, from fossil and artifacts. Yeah. We're going to talk about some other stuff in here, but yeah, and I'm kind of glossing over this on the first segment. You'll find out why here in just a minute. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, the great apes don't have a bias towards one or the other. Mm-hmm. But like I said, group level hand preference has been observed in chimpanzees and other apes for skilled tool use and food processing. So that kind of indicates that, you know, hey, if you've got a strong member of the group that might be teaching culturally oh, yeah. how to do something because yeah. animals do that of mm-hmm. course they they train their young mm-hmm. and if they're using their their left hand to put a stick into an anthill to to pull out the ants 
them. And, and eat them, then their they're young are probably going to do the same thing. Which absolutely makes sense. Yeah. And it makes sense that it would be limited to the population level because that kind of behavior doesn't normally get shared outside of their population or their family or whatever. So that makes right. sense. And if there were a bias like there was in us, it would have to be something that was genetic. Yeah, it would. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another thing that tells you that our right-hand bias has to be genetic. Mm-hmm. It's not learned behavior. And in fact, parents have tried to out lefty their kids oh, yeah. and make them right-handed. Yes. And it, it often goes terribly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the thing to remember about genes, too, is that they're weird. And the things <laughs> that get selected for in genes are not always what you would think. Like, we have an appendix and we don't need it. Like, right. there's a lot of weird stuff in our genetic code. And this could fall into that. Like, maybe it's selected for for no reason. Maybe it just happened because genetics is weird. Well, and something interesting about genetics, I was we were driving today and I was listening to this book called Outlive. I can't remember the name of the author, but mm-hmm. look it up. It came out within the last couple of years. He's basically a surgeon, a doctor, not a surgeon, he's a doctor. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this book on, it's a book on longevity. Now, there's a lot of books about that, but his take on things is not... Not how can we live longer necessarily, mm-hmm. but his it, that's what it ended up being because his focus of his research, he was tired of dealing with disease once it happened. Yeah. And he wanted to start looking at how do we prevent the thing yeah. from happening. Which is smart. Right. And yeah. But one of the things he said in a, in a portion of it that I listened to today was related to genetics. And he was like, people have asked him before because he's talked about this a lot. And I've never heard this, actually, this question actually asked and I've never thought about it. But if natural selection has spent the last hundreds of millions of years selecting all the good traits Mm -hmm. that allow us to be successful and thrive. Why do we have cancer? Why do Mm -hmm. we have male pattern baldness? Why do we have dementia and Alzheimer's and stuff like that? And the reason is because natural selection doesn't care about us once we're, you know, 40, 50 years old. Doesn't care what we look like. It doesn't. It doesn't care if you remember your, your children after 70 years. (laughs) It It, it cares about the early (laughs) stuff. And as long as you can reproduce at least once, that's where natural selection passes on the genes. But Mm -hmm. once these, once these other things express themselves, the gene has, is already there in your body and you're passing it on without even knowing it. Right. But if you say, you know, went bald at 15 Mm -hmm. because of a gene and made you less attractive in whatever society you're in, then your gene is going to be selected out. But if you don't go bald until you're 50, Mm -hmm. nobody even knows you have the gene. Yeah. It's kind of like the BRCA gene too for breast cancer in women, right? Yes. If you have that gene, you're more likely to get breast cancer, but it's probably going to be after you've already had whatever children you're going to have. After you've already submitted your code. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Already submitted your code. Oh my God. That's so like robotic, but also so perfect. I love it. Yeah. So that's, yeah, genetics are weird. That's what it comes down to. And I mean, that's a really little statement for a really big thing because they're not yeah. weird. They have a very specific purpose. But for me, that's how I have to think about it. Like you just, you, you just don't always know what they're doing and why, right. what they're, what it's getting selected for and why. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to read a paragraph straight out of one of the sources that we have down in the references. Yep. So take a look at your links. There's a lot of stuff down there. And I really did. I kind of pulled in a bunch of stuff and, mm-hmm. and pulled little bits and pieces from these for research on this podcast. So this will be a little bit of an academic jargon trigger warning for you people that uh, don't like this. <laughs> I don't even like it either. Some of these, some of these articles, really hard. are, they're hard to read because yeah. there's a citation every four words. Yeah. It's like, did you write anything original in this? <laughs> right. But anyway, the quote is. When primatology meets paleoanthropology, the evidence suggests species-level right-handedness may have emerged through the social transmission of increasingly complex, bimanually differentiated tool-using activities. Hmm. End quote. Mm-hmm. So, what that means is primatology is us. Yep. 
and paleoanthropology is our ancestors in the past, mm-hmm. t- typically fossilized, mm-hmm. so really, really far past. And they're saying that species level right-handedness emerged through the social transmission of increasingly complex by manually differentiated tool using activities. So we're saying tool using because that's what we have to look at right mm-hmm. now, right? So we're assuming maybe that was one of the things because they were doing it. So what they're saying is that through the use of tools and the creation of tools and the social transmission of that information and the more complex it gets that this started, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it, I'm not a geneticist, but sort of rewiring the brain. And then those traits were being inherited, Mm -hmm. you know, so we've got some other stuff to talk about. And and I'm not totally sure that that is 100% how -hmm. that went down, but there it is. So... Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we've got a little bit of a surprise here. I we we wanted to talk about this ourselves, but I also wanted to bring in somebody who'd actually studied this. And when mm-hmm. I was looking for resources, a name came up and a master's thesis mm-hmm. that I found, and it was Lana Ruck. Mm-hmm. Now, anybody who listens to other shows on the network, notably Life and Ruins podcast, knows Lana Ruck. She's mm-hmm. been on, I think, at least times. two or three yeah. episodes of the Life and Ruins podcast. Yeah. And what she did her thesis work on for her master's degree was handedness. Yeah. And it was super cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So I tracked her down and nailed her down for just a a single segment. It's a little bit of a longer segment, but I think you're really going to enjoy this. So let's take a break. And while we're taking that break, listen, we're trying to like help everybody out at the podcast network here. So just take a glance down at your phone or your thing, whatever you're looking (laughs) at this on. Maybe click through one of the little affiliates we have down there and we get a little (laughs) kickback if you do something with that affiliate. That would be great. And they're not just garbage. There's actually some good stuff down there. So so while you're listening to these ads, maybe take a glance down. Hopefully you're not driving and click on one of those. And if you buy something, we get a little bit of a cut. So that would be super awesome. Anyway, we'll be back in a minute. And on the other side, we'll be talking to Lana. Back in a second. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, and we're doing something a little bit different this segment. I did some research, and if you look down in your show notes, you'll see links to this stuff, but 
I found a past guest on another show on the Archaeology Podcast Network, and I kind of knew her through editing her, but I don't think we'd ever spoken before. <laughs> so I reached out and I wanted to mention, again, look down on the show notes and you can find her thesis. But Lana, welcome to the show for this short segment to talk about your thesis research. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So tell us a little bit about what the main thesis of your thesis was, so to speak. Yeah, so the thesis was actually born out of an idea I had as an undergraduate. I was in a human evolution class and had to write a term paper. Mm -hmm. And my question was, when did humans all evolve to be right-handed or, you know, primarily because we have so few left-handers and no other species on Earth is like that. So it's definitely unique to us. And that kind of led me down a path of, well, how could you tell when handedness prevalence for right-handers evolved? And the best answer ended up being potentially to go ahead and look at the archaeological record and evidence for handedness potentially in the earliest and the stone tool record to see if you could find evidence of shifting handedness using those present materials that preserve as long as they do. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because stone tools would, I mean, going back far enough, that'd be about the only thing we could look at, right? Because there's, there's, I don't know if you know this or not, but do you know if there's any sort of indication on even modern people that, you know, on your, on your skeletal remains that you might be dominant in one hand or another? I, I don't imagine muscles develop any differently unless you do something specialized, do they? Oh yeah, no, there definitely is. So there are other there? markers. And I actually kind of go through that in the thesis, like what have other people used? Hmm. Definitely bone asymmetry is one of them. But once you go further and further back in time, the requirement for having full and complete paired long bones that you can identify for a single individual, Hmm. you know, you're looking at like Turconoboy. Sure. Yeah, (laughs) that's about it. So it gets really difficult. Other people have used asymmetry in internal dimples in the brain. I don't want to get to, you know, neophrenology or anything. I think (laughs) there are really big problems with that approach. Mm -hmm. But there is some evidence that you can tell handedness or dominance from dimples on the inside of the brain. Okay. Which is a whole other part of the story about handedness and and brain organization and and that's what I did for my doctoral research. Mm-hmm. What other ways? People have actually used teeth to detect handedness, which is really, really? interesting. This is specifically in Neanderthals. Okay. It's because they did so much work with hides and they would use their teeth as a third hand, you know, and do hide scraping where you hold the hide in the non-dominant hand. You put the other pressure, the tension with your teeth, hmm. and then you scrape with your dominant hand, Right. Okay. And if you do that for your whole life, you end up with these micro striations on your teeth that are directional in the same direction that you were scraping in. Hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. But that only works for a particular sample, right? You have to have enough teeth. You have to have the right setup for the scanner. You have to, you know, that's only considering one species. Sure. So once you do all of this math of like, what are your sample sizes? What's your availability of what you're going to work with? It really ends up being, well, stone tools are the most robust record, but we just have to figure out, can we detect handedness in them? Okay. I I think I've seen other studies before about detecting handedness in stone tools. And I, I think one other thing we could mention too, 
is rock art, detecting handedness yes, in, in rock art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot that one. I knew I was missing something, but it's been a while, <laughs> yeah. you know? That's a huge one. Yeah, because people have specifically, like, I don't know, painted outlines of their hands and, and sometimes like as a signature, right? And you would almost assume that they would do their dominant hand with that, but there's probably other indications we can look at as well. Yeah, no, there are definitely naturalistic studies of things like this that people have done to see like at a, let's say you go to a fair or, you know, like a flint napping event, a napping or something, and you just have a kid's a wall up there and you just mm-hmm. observe them, do a count of how many kids are going to go up there and like use their non-dominant hand if you know their handedness. Yeah, there's tons of stuff out there about the rock art and, you know, whether it be direct press or stencil. Hmm. Natalie Iwamini is a person who's done a lot of that. Her last name, U-O-I-M-I-N-I. Yeah. Okay. She's out of the UK somewhere. (laughs) She's hopped around a bit. So going back to lithics. Yeah. I'm curious as to you know, really what some of the specifics are to, you know, what you can look at to look at a stone tool and say, you know, how how do you look at that and say what handedness a person was when they built that? Because my knowledge of lithics, and I've done a little bit of flint napping and I'm a CRM archaeologist, so I've seen quite a few projectile points, but you you flip them over, you do both sides or bifacial, you know, I'm just like, how can you determine handedness from that? What do you, what do you look for? Yes. I'm actually going to go like full circle here on you. (laughs) I really kind of plan this to be a life's work, right? Because the stone Mm -hmm. pool record is huge. So if you got a working method, you you could never stop. Mm -hmm. But so it all starts at a basic principle, right? With that Hertzian cone fracture, the basic principle of stone tool making and how the direction of that, you know, initial blow going out through the stone in either centered or skewed patterns, right? Mm -hmm. Skewed to the left, skewed to the right. And there are all these different markers that people have tried to look at, you know, as many as like 20 or something for Mm -hmm. the European team in the early 2010s. And it's like the bulb of percussion, the ripples, the hackles, are there aurelier scars? Are there any ridges on the bulb of percussion? Mm -hmm. Uh, What shape is the platform, you know? What kind of, or what area on the back of the piece or the, you know, has cortex, if any. Okay. And so they look at all these things to see if there's any correlation between that and the handedness of the napper. And let's say you're looking at like unifacial, like directional circular reduction of a core. Okay. You could easily sort that out, right? Hmm. There's not enough variance in the system for it to be too, you know, complicated. But once you're making something like a 500,000 year old Acheulean hand axe, that's like very <laughs> refined. There's so much variation going on that I, at this point, think it would be really difficult to answer that question hmm. because there are so many things to consider. And these are all things that, you know, we would talk about endlessly in my lab, right? And we would design sure. the experiments that we would want to do on it, realize we don't have the budget for the rock and give up. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, nor any, you know, the availability of nappers who are going to come unless you're going to go out and find them and convince them to be in your study. And then you got to tow the rock. And I'm sorry to say, but scientists are not really great at that. Some of them are, you know, not me. Yeah. <laughs> right. But so, you know, there are logistical difficulties to doing a big study of trying to get a sample size large enough to sort out that variability. 
But like, mm. let's say detecting the number of nappers at a site. Right. You know, unless you have distinct scatters with distinct material types, you know. Okay. From a mixed assemblage, it's going to be my approach in my master's based on some publications near that time was can you tell from a single flake? That's what right. people were doing at the time. Wow. You would need a lot more help from that in the input. Because at this point, what you're using to try and help you detect these, like, you know, the, your input would be all your measurements about the stone. Mm-hmm. And then your output would be the algorithms guessed, whether it be a statistical algorithm or, you know, some machine learning thing or, you know, some fancy AI black box. We don't know. <laughs> uh, it spits out an answer left or right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, oh, Bayesian. I forgot that. that all yeah. 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 That doesn't really give you an answer. <laughs> Going off the analysis and, and AI and stuff like that, I mean, AI is a hot topic right now, of course, with chat GPT and seems like it just exploded onto the scene, to be honest with you. And now people are talking about using AI for, for all kinds of stuff that they weren't even thinking of before. But, you know, you just mentioning, you know, scans and being able to tell from like, you know, one flake kind of thing. It seems like if we had enough, you know, really good flint nappers, not just beginner flint nappers, but people who knew what they were doing you know, right-handed and left-handed flint nappers, you know, creating the same objects and then taking very, very highly detailed scans of those things, dropping those into a computer and doing some deep learning, some machine learning on that. It almost seems like if it were possible, we could just toss a flake into this thing after it learns enough and say, yeah. (laughs) You could do it probably for one assemblage and it would take you your life because Mm -hmm. of how long it takes to scan an item. Yeah. How long it would take to pre-process that kind of data. And like, you know, because flakes in particular and, and stone, stone objects, really, they are really hard to scan. Yeah, I bet. You know, we wouldn't ever use obsidian because that's stupid as hell for a scanner. But even <laughs> if you're using like the most opaque, like some chunky quartzite in every single scan, you're going to get pixel that you have to edit out. Even mm. if you get a computer program to edit those out, you know. You could stack as many automated tools, black boxes as you want on a a computer process, Mm -hmm. right? And here's one problem. And I really learned this in my dissertation when I was doing this. It was that kind of work, not on scanning the lithics at this point, but on scanning brains Mm. to look at brain activation for stone tool making. Right. The more black box shit you're doing, so I just say it, <laughs> the less replicable and less interpretable your results get because you don't know sure. what those algorithms are doing. So yeah. bad data in would be bad data out. And, you know, when you do experimental studies on handedness and stone tool making, you're always going to find an issue of left-handed expert flint nappers. Mm-hmm. You know, for my thesis, I was mailing rocks halfway across the country and they were mailing them back to me because that's the only way I could find them. And then one wow. guy bailed on me and I had to drive myself, you know, seven or eight hours into rural Georgia for an emergency. You know, like <laughs> I was like, I found the closest napping in the nearest month. We're all going to go and hope that there's a left hander there. And there was one, <laughs> you know. It sounds like as a left-handed archaeologist myself, I should really learn how to flint nap. I'd have a pretty solid career, it sounds like, <laughs> well, that's giving researchers tools. Too. It's like, I am the worst at flint napping. I can't do it at all. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> right. Oh, man. So it's a fascinating topic, but yeah. it would be a lot of laborious and dedicated, tedious yeah. work to figure it out. And I think like one thing I would say that I wish I had kind of gotten out in the world before I left academia was there's enough other context with all the other research that people have done, you know, with other species, within neurosciences and all these other places that like we can be confident about a general timeline for when handedness, mm -hmm. language and, mm. you know, higher cognition, those types of things evolved. And people are starting to publish that kind of research now. It's coming out. Um, they're continuing to do it. It's exciting. So a couple of quick questions here near the end of the segment. Is there any or do you know, have you heard of any possible genetic evidence, like any sort of gene expressions that could indicate handedness? Oh, man, that's so complicated. That's so complicated. So the shortest answer is that people have put heritability of handedness at like 25%, which is actually quite low. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think. Let me quickly. Yeah. Well, while you're doing that, just looking at my own family, I've got one brother. My mom comes from a family where she's got one sister and one brother. And of her siblings, her brother was left-handed. Nobody else was. My brother's not left-handed. Nobody in my dad's immediate family is, as far as I know. He comes from a, a like five-sibling family, and none of them were left-handed. And then my grandparents on my mom's side, where my left-handedness seems to go just because of my uncle, my grandparents weren't left-handed either. So I don't know how far yeah. it comes down, but it's very low. <laughs> I mean, handedness research is probably my favorite part of what I did in the end. It kept me like going because yeah. it's so fascinating. So, right, the heritability for handedness is like 25%, whereas for height, it's like 80 mm -hmm. So handedness is like one of those things that has a really strong environmental or component. Mm -hmm. And here's the real thing, especially behaviorally. If you're a lefty in a family full of right-handers, I promise yeah. you this without knowing it, you behave a lot like a righty. You use your <laughs> right hand a lot more than your left. But if you're a yeah. lefty in a family full of lefties, you guys are really lefty. <laughs> so it's very, very social context-y, how you learned who you, who you got taught from. You know, sure. we live in a very right-handed world, so left-handers are forced to accommodate or self-accommodate. <laughs> You are forced yep. to assimilate. That's the word. Yeah. You know, so that doesn't help. But handedness research is so cool. And there there are way too many genes to track. There are thousands I bet. of papers on that. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. So one, one final question for you then is, do we have any idea or what are the current theories that you're aware of on perhaps... <sighs> Perhaps I guess why handedness developed in humans and not any other species. Do we have? Do we even close to understanding that? <laughs> yes, that's okay. a long answer though. I'll start okay. with this: other ape species have hand preference at an individual level, where every okay. ape has a right hand or left hand preference. Not every, but most. So there's some history there. Mm -hmm. They're not like us in how much because they don't do as much differential bimanual skill okay. where each hand has to do a different coordinated task at one time. Okay. 
What's a really good example of a complicated bimanual task that gets you a really big reward that helps build a really big brain that could maybe ratchet effect in a kind of circular way? Stone tool making. Hmm. So you kind of build the need by needing the tool. You kind of learn the task. And this, this bimanual stone tool manufacturer kind of pressures the brain to divide tasks and okay. that lateralization in the brain, that extra kick to push the brain to push tasks to one side or the other, kicks the handedness from individual to individual further and further. And as for why it went right versus left, that goes all the way back to like fish evolution. Really? And it relates to how brains organize visual spatial attention to the right hemisphere and other kinds of processing to the left hemisphere. And it has wow. to do with defense versus eating. It's crazy stuff. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Wow, that really is crazy. And if you read all the other papers I wrote, there are bits and pieces of it in there, but you'd have to read a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it sounds, I mean, as with all things in science, it's way more complicated than I ever assumed it would be. And, you know, and I guess, I guess that just kind of makes sense, but we're at the end of the segment. I really appreciate you coming on to tell us all this. This has been just fascinating. And it, it almost seems like we need to have you on for another show just to just to fully talk about this for an entire hour, <laughs> maybe sometime in the future. I could talk about it for decades. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Maybe we'll have to create a handedness podcast, handedness in archaeology, just have a whole show about it, a whole, you know, oh, many episodes. Yes. But indeed. All right. Well, thanks, Lana. I really appreciate it. And for the listeners, take a look down at your show notes and you can see Lana Ruck's thesis link. And we've got a bunch of other links in there too. So you can do your own research and, and read on some of these topics. We'll be back in a minute with another segment. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 222. And wasn't that interview with Lana super That cool? was so amazing. <laughs> she is... Just seems like such a cool person, but yeah. also her information was, it was better than the like hours of research we spent <laughs> before being able to talk to her. Hey, right? go figure when you find an expert in this or <laughs> somebody who's actually studied it. Like talking to her for 20 minutes, I feel like we learned more and I wasn't yeah. even on the interview, but I listened to it later and like, yeah, that 20 minutes was yeah. more informative than just reading a bunch of stuff. So it was great. Yeah. So what are your, got any thoughts coming from that right away? Well, I, I loved all the like the social inheritance of handedness stuff. And we kind of talked about this at the end of segment one. And then you and Lana talked about it a little bit too, but how handedness could have been inherited in a population mm -hmm. because the people doing the teaching were teaching it one way. And then if that way was all the the same hand then that that could be inherited by the whole population and then right. extrapolate that out to the entire like human genome so what i was thinking about that was like i actively participate in squashing leftism mm. when i teach people how to knit yeah that's <laughs> which why is i can't like, knit it was <laughs> no that's not why you can knit so from a social teaching standpoint i'm right-handed and i have had some left-handed students in the past and 
at first earlier in my career where I would be teaching, I would try to teach them left-handed. I'd have them sit facing me and you do this mirrored thing. Mm -hmm. But honestly, it never worked very well. They were in a sort of institution where everything else was right-handed patterns were written right-handed and they would be trying to reverse it and it just wouldn't work well. So I got to the point where I was like, look, I know you're left-handed, but knitting involves two hands and I'm going to teach you how to do it the right-handed way, but don't think of it as the right-handed way. Just think of it as the way that will allow you to knit and follow all of the patterns in the world because this is how everybody does it. Yeah. So I'm like actively squashing leftyism in the knitting community. Well, that makes me actually (laughs) think... I mean, not to bring this all around knitting, but it yeah. has to do with handedness. So yeah. do you have to like mentally rewrite the pattern if you're a you lefty? Do. If you want to knit lefty. So right. so right-handed people knit from the left to the right. You take the stitches on the left side and you move them to the right side. Yeah. Now a left-handed person would go the other direction. And if you're doing that, then you also have to reverse the instructions. Mm. And I'm going to stop talking about it right there because I never tried to get past that or think beyond that because it gets so confusing yeah. when you're thinking about how to do that. But yeah, like if you start thinking about it, when you're looking at the right side of a piece or the left side of a piece, if you're coming at it from the opposite direction, you have to knit it the opposite direction. So well, that could be a little yeah. niche if you just like, <laughs> right. if you if converted all your patterns to left-handed and had a whole website called left-handed patterns. Yeah. Yeah. And talk to just the 15% of the population that's left-handed. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, other knitting teachers out there are squashing leftyism and knitting too. Most people that I know that knit that are left-handed just do it the right-handed way. So, right. but I would love to hear if there are people who knit left-handed and go through all the effort of, <laughs> Of converting well, them to go the other direction. I can't even scissor right-handed, <laughs> so, you know. The tool part of it is hard. Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, sorry. That was like a little, like, yes. random story. <laughs> so I, I want to pick out some stuff because, you know, we're not going to rehash the interview with Lana necessarily, but I got some stuff to talk about that. Yeah. But from one of the other resources, I want to talk about that next. But before we get there, I wanted to talk to something because... Right near the end of the interview, I asked her about what what is the consensus here? Where do we really think all this yeah. came from? And why right and not left? Yeah. And that was super interesting to me. And, mm-hmm. you know, where she said the fact that it's right side, first off, probably goes all the way back to fish evolution, which was mm-hmm. super cool because, and she just chose fish because that's, you know, before we were yeah. on land, right? Right. Before our ancestors were on the land. Our ancestors, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> all mammals. Yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. because it, you know, has to do with, how the brain evolved, you know, mm-hmm. right brain, left brain, and and the the um, how those things happen, and that's really what she's talking about is the evolution of the hemispheric nature of the brain mm-hmm. and what parts of the body that controls the left side versus the right side. Mm-hmm. Well, fast forward millions, billions of years, and when our ancient ancestors started traveling a little more together mm-hmm. and really having to communicate a little more than say chimpanzees, their ancestors mm-hmm. were doing. When they started really starting to develop the first signs of language, that develops in the left side of the brain. Mm-hmm. The language centers are on the left side of the brain, and the left side of the brain controls largely the right side of the body. Right, right. So becoming mm-hmm. more developed on the left-hand side from that standpoint, or at least from that technical standpoint, yeah. some people think that that led to right-handedness. Led, yeah, I mean, right, that makes sense. Led to right being the bias. Right, yeah. Yeah. Now, what led to... You know, right, right being dominant to begin with. You yeah. know, why why is there one over the other? Why not just be ambidextrous like yeah. some people actually are? I wonder if it has to do with language again because... Teaching, I think. Teaching, yeah. Because, you know, when you don't have language, you're demonstrating, right? Yeah. But when you have language, you're using words and you're saying the right side and the left side. And maybe people are learning by hearing those words and just yeah. de- deferring to that rather than 
watching something, which would be a mirror image if you're watching somebody yeah. do something and then kind of choosing their own way to do it. I don't know. That's possible, maybe? It would be interesting to know, too. You know, there's so many things I would try to observe if we had, like, time travel and I could go back mm-hmm. a million years. Right. But you'd want to see, like, before they were really talking to each other, I'd probably be astonished to see that they have some rudimentary form of communication. They have mm-hmm. to be able to not necessarily talk to each other, not could sit down and have a deep conversation around the fire, but they have to be able to communicate. Yeah, there's got to be something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even dolphins communicate, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we're seeing human ancestors that are burying their dead. Like, yeah. you have to have communication among a group of people that do that. Yeah. So, so they're communicating, and I, w- I would love to see, like, in that early, early, early formations of that, when we were three and a half, four feet tall, and starting to do this kind of thing, like, when they throw something, whether it's just something they picked up off the ground, mm-hmm. not a developed anything, just like a rock or a stick, do they throw it with their right hand? Yeah. And when does that start? Yeah. You know, and if they did, is that how tool use or tool construction really became dominant with the right hand, Mm -hmm. you know, and then that dominance of the right hand makes me wonder, well, is that what helped language develop? Because if you're initially dominant on the right hand, or maybe that's just luck of the draw, Mm -hmm. that right was, you know, for some reason, the choice, or enough people who are, were doing that were selected for, Mm -hmm. did that help language develop? Because the right handedness helped develop the left side of the brain more for language development skills and stuff mm-hmm. like that and language goes hand in hand with teaching I don't mm-hmm. know it's all crazy I don't know I love speculating on this kind of stuff though because you don't know but there's a lot of different things you can think of about why yeah. it might have happened and really like sitting here and coming up with all the the maybes and the might haves is really the fun right. of a topic like this yeah yeah as long as you're not saying that it absolutely happened this way <laughs> right stay away right. from saying that but anyway <laughs> So in the last part of this episode here, we're going to talk about one of the articles because I thought it was really interesting and it's uh, from Live Science 2011. So there's been some more research since then, but what mm-hmm. they're saying is not wrong because Lana mentioned this stuff too, but mm-hmm. it's called Ancient Humans Were Mostly Right-Handed Too. And first off, when you get there, uh, you click down on the link, take a look at the incisors, the front yeah. teeth that are in the picture there. They're yeah. It's very obvious that you're seeing differences there. It's really cool. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, Lana kind of mentioned this, but we didn't really get into it and I was thinking the teeth showed uh, unique wear patterns for different reasons than this article actually states. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if Lana's research was more current and mm. people were finding additional things. But anyway, we'll talk about that. You heard mm-hmm. that interview, so we're going we're gonna to talk about this one. Yep. But anyway, the article is basically not talking about how handedness developed, but right-handed dominance. Yeah, just like how you yeah. see it in the archaeological record, basically, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. then specifically right-handedness, yeah. uh, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So they took a look at teeth of Neanderthals from about 100,000 years ago and their ancestors at about... 500,000 years ago Mm -hmm. and found some interesting results. First off, I'll read a quote here from one of the researchers, David Freyer. We are right-handed, and he's making a really firm statement here, but we'll see. Uh, (laughs) You know how I feel about firm statements, but go on. (laughs) Right. We are right-handed because the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body, like we said before, and the left side of the brain is where language is processed. This is important because it tells us that they were brain lateralized just like we are, and they probably had language capacity. So they're saying that, oh, because we can see that there's right-handed, I was kind of saying it the other way around. They're saying it because we were right-handed, they probably had language capacity because that would have helped develop the left side of the brain oh, where the language is processed. I see. Okay. But I'm like, well, if being right-hand dominant, did that maybe help the left side of the brain become better equipped yeah. to do other things? Like, one of those things being language. Sounds like a chicken and an egg situation. I know. Like which, which one? Which one came first? But yeah. 
or maybe it was simultaneous. I mean, the the answer to a question like that always seems like it's somewhere in the middle, yeah. some kind of gray area in the middle. But yeah. So the cool thing these guys did was they found evidence of handedness in those front teeth I mentioned mm-hmm. at the top of the segment. There are scratch marks on the teeth, and this is where it gets really interesting. Scratch marks on the teeth that show they used their left or right hand to process animal hides. So you could tell the handedness of the person based on the scratches on the teeth. And this is where I didn't ask Lana to get more specific. Mm-hmm. And I thought what she was really talking about, well, well, okay, what they're doing is they have a piece of hide and they need to basically scrape off all the, to be honest, the meat, mm-hmm. right? You need to get it down to just the layer of skin that holds the fur, right? Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be super gross. It's yeah. not. You're not it's, already smelling too too great, but yeah. you know. But yeah. they got to scrape all that stuff off and then let it you know sit in the sun and do yeah. all the things that it's going to do. Right? They got to process it. So in order to do that, they would hold the hide in their mouth with one with in their with mouth their teeth. and with yeah. their teeth, and they would stretch out the hide with their non-dominant hand. Right. With their dominant hand, they would use a stone tool mm-hmm. to scrape to the scrape hide. It. Mm-hmm. And where these striations or marks came from on the incisors was on the outside the front of the incisors right the uh not the lingual the um lingual is the tongue side the buccal side yeah and they said that they think it's from when the stone tool just got too close and it scratched their teeth oh no way (laughs) oh crazy yeah so but you can see the angle that they're going at on the teeth yeah and you know that they're holding it out in one direction in one direction or the other so if you're like holding it out to the left you're probably right-handed yeah. because your right hand is using the tool. Yeah, totally. They're making an assumption that the right hand is the dominant one doing the tool because why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be? It's the one yeah. doing the work. So yeah. it makes sense that your dominant hand would be doing right. that. It's still an assumption, though. So. It is. That's true. Yeah. I wonder if it's possible that the hand holding the hideout was the one doing the work. Like maybe they were rubbing it on something that was stationary. Doesn't seem like it because I think we have evidence from going way back that this Does is it, how yeah. things are processed. Yeah, yeah, probably. So, anyway, they were looking for wear on the surface of the front teeth, and and this is where they found it. Where I was getting confused, or I didn't even think to ask because I I didn't know I was confused, mm-hmm. was when Lana mentioned basically this same study, mm-hmm. probably this one or something similar. I thought she was actually talking about you know wear marks on the backside of the teeth from holding the hide. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? We didn't really talk about the the tools the hitting tool. the teeth. Well, there could be other types of processing that they're doing where they're using their their jaw or their teeth to mm-hmm. stabilize something between their teeth while they're doing something to it. Like I'm thinking making cord or twine or something yeah. like that. So that could be the kind of thing that, that you were thinking of or that Lana was talking about. Right. So for right-handed people, the scratches went from the upper left side of the tooth to the lower right, and uh, they would use the dominant hand to scrape the hides, like I said. Mm-hmm. And most of the teeth in the study show this to be true. Yeah. You're going to have really your outliers cool. that either don't have enough scratches on them, or maybe somebody really was ambidextrous yeah. and just switched back and forth, you know? Yeah. I'm kind of wondering, like, it doesn't seem like you would really need a dominant hand for that. Maybe you use your dominant hand more often, but mm-hmm. if you got a lot to do, you're probably going to be switching back and forth. Oh, yeah. That's a really good point, because your arm gets tired, right? Yeah. I mean, when I'm bra- French braiding my hair, like, I got to switch hands, because, like, one gets tired after a while. I mean, first world problem. <laughs> Problems, I guess. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. But if most of the evidence points towards this dominant hand doing the work, then they must have really like relied on that one arm to do all that work. Like, yeah. You know, the evidence doesn't lie in this case yeah. anyway. That's cool. Anyway, 
a lot of cool things we found out in this episode. It was uh, not really a news episode, and we like doing these a little uh, occasionally, doing mm-hmm. some deep dives on these things. Yeah. And I've always kind of wondered about handedness being an outcast myself. So, <laughs> you know. I know. We don't even have a pair of left-handed scissors for you. Now I feel kind of bad. I make you cut everything. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> you probably like it that way. You know, or my little pampered <laughs> chef cheese knife doesn't even work right. No, you know that, right? No, it doesn't. Yeah, because like the blade's on the wrong side. It's, d- it's intended to push the cheese away, <laughs> and it just doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I need to start a Christmas list for you. I need to get left-handed scissors, a left-handed cheese-cutting knife, apparently. Is there anything else that you feel discriminated against about? (laughs) Um, You know, I tried to learn guitar one time. They're very right-handed. Oh, yeah, I bet so. You got to restring them. Yeah. And I think if you do it the right way... Like the the high note, I can't remember. I don't know the names of the strings. Yeah. I can't remember. But uh-huh. the high note, the really thin one, is on the bottom. Uh huh. If you're doing it the right-handed oh, way, course. I think. But it it would be on the other side yeah. if you're. So you have to learn completely backwards. <laughs> yeah. Or you just learn a different. I don't know how you do it. I think you just oh, learn right-handed. You might just learn right-handed. Yeah. yeah. So. Oh. But I'm not even sure which hand is supposed to be your dominant hand playing the guitar because one's doing really complicated yeah. things with chords, and the other one's doing really complicated things with a pick. I'm saying that's why I tell knitters that yeah. both your hands are doing things and they're both kind of complicated. Right. So don't worry about right-handed or left-handed. Just learn it the way that everybody else does it because then if you need help, there will be somebody that can help you. And that's probably what the human said, you know, 100,000 years ago when they were teaching them how to strip Mm -hmm. hide too. And all of a sudden, now we're all right-handed because of it. Exactly. Sorry, you live in my world. All right. Well, (laughs) if you're home right now or if you're on your way home or if you're going to be home later and you have a fish tank, thank your little fish friend for, you know, (laughs) their ancestors developing the brains that developed language that helped you be right-handed. I think you can also thank them for, like, everything, though, right? Like, probably probably. also for, like, cancer and all the other things that, like, we get as humans that are not great. So, you know, it's... Forgetfulness. It's the good with the bad, right? Exactly. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. We'll be back next week. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.